0: Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Taylor Miller, and I recently completed my doctorate in the School of Geography, Development and Environment at the University of Arizona. I'm currently a researcher with the Southwest Center, and today I'm exuberant to connect with Tara Plath. Tara is a PhD student in the Film and Media Studies Department at UC Santa Barbara. She holds an MA in Research Architecture from Goldsmiths, University of London, and a BFA in Sculpture and BA in Visual and Critical Studies from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She is an interdisciplinary practice-based researcher whose ongoing research uses mapping and open source investigation techniques to challenge state violence, surveillance, and militarization at the US Southwest border in Arizona. Tara, welcome. It's wonderful we finally get to connect here. <laughs> you and I have missed one another in travels. You know, we've been between California and Arizona this past year, but I'm thrilled that we get to align for a bit and chat about your research. Um, I first learned about your projects since I closely follow groups like Forensic Architecture and Border Forensics, and so we'll chat about your work with them in a little bit, but Welcome um before we (laughs) hi hi sorry no it's okay I uh it's a long-winded introduction because you have so much on your plate and so much exciting work um so before we dive into all of that though um welcome and I was hoping you could share a bit with us about what initially drew you to the Sonoran Desert and what some of those initial lines of inquiry were and are regarding migration the freedom of movement, the lack thereof, of course, concurrently, um, and all the various methods of surveillance. So, welcome. That's a big first question, but hi and welcome. And we, we want to learn more. Here we are. Thank you so,
1: so much for having me. It's so nice to speak with you. Yeah, after so many near misses, and we've been talking a bit online for the last few months. Um, and I appreciate you taking this interest in my work and inviting me onto the podcast. And in the company of so many incredible previous guests, I was listening to some of the prior episodes earlier this week. It's a pleasure to join you.
0: Welcome, welcome. So yeah, let's, I, I, first of all, I'd love to learn about sort of what drew you to the Sonoran Desert. It, you sure. know, for me, it has a lot of sort of magical and enticing mm-hmm. qualities, but of course, everybody, you know, comes to it sort of in their own unique way. Yeah.
1: So I think the research and work I've been doing for the past few years is really a culmination of many different driving forces and interests that led me to the Sonoran Desert, somewhat by surprise. I'm not from the area originally, I'm from New England. Um, But some of those interests are and have been in just generally representations of space and place. And going way back, um, as you mentioned, I went to art school for undergrad at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, And while I was there, I became interested in trying to understand techniques of photojournalism to represent spaces of disaster, um, the flattening of very specific places into kinds of generalized textures of ruin, decay, or conflict. Um, I think this interest continues to stay with me, this sort of vast divide between the experience of a place and how representations of that place are removed and circulated in the news, in films, or in stories. Um, It continues to really drive my thinking as my research has become centered at the border between U.S. and Mexico, Um, and what feels like sometimes the impossibility to describe what's happening, sort of the scenario and the dynamics of border militarization and of migration in the area. Um, or how the images that are circulated sensationalize, sensationalize the situation, but often in what feels like the completely wrong direction to, to drum up white nationalist fears rather than shed light on, on the inhumane conditions of militarization and disappearance that's unfolding. More um, similarly, as you were mentioning, the Sonoran Desert is incredibly magical, and I'm interested in you know how the desert can be depicted as a lifeless and empty space and how these depictions are then used to justify all kinds of violence, um, military testing and dispossession. And I think you and I and anybody who lives there knows it's not a lifeless and empty space. Yeah. So that said, yeah, my own attention was um, not on the border in those years when I was an undergrad and, and for the years after um, when I was living in New York and working in the arts But then interest headed in the direction of the Sonoran Desert and the border while I was getting my master's degree at the Center for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths in London. Um, And so this program, if people aren't familiar, it brings together um, visual practices, including art, architecture, filmmaking, um, with an interrogation of state violence, of conflict, of human rights and environmental issues. So the students that go through this program to get their master's or a PhD often attempt to produce new methods that contribute to efforts of to resist state violence. Um, And this might take the form of counter mapping um, or creating visual media archives that produce alternative narratives to a state narrative, for, for example. And so when I got to my master's, I didn't have a specific project in mind, but I knew I wanted to better understand the relationship between U.S. militarism, surveillance, and different environmental imaginaries. I came with these very vague general interests, Um, and I was curious about the connections between surveillance technologies and infrastructures designed for warfare abroad and then re-imported into the domestic context and put to work at the border, such as ground sensors, which were first employed in Vietnam and now are scattered across the desert in Arizona. And in trying to ground those interests in a specific project, I came across um, a pretty old news article. You know, these these articles about the border get written probably in tandem with election cycles. Um, So this isn't a new issue, but this I came across an article about a family whose relative had disappeared while crossing the border through the desert on foot. And I I think I experienced what a lot of people feel when they first learn about what is happening and what cross-border movement migration in the area looks like and at this time it feels a little naive but I think you know when you encounter this for the first time I felt this sense of disbelief and shock that uh, in fact hundreds of people are dying and disappearing every year in Arizona alone um, with many many more disappearing and so that that realization that encounter really motivated me. And I threw myself into the research to try to better understand what exactly was occurring, how the scenario had come to be and and what the mechanisms were that were driving it.
0: Absolutely fascinating. You know, sometimes feels impossible to segue from those lived experiences of others and those disappearances and deaths. And, you know, we're, we're of course going to to touch on that a, a mm. bit more, but thinking about these infrastructures for bordering and how, just like you said, this is of course nothing new. You and I are having this chat at a pretty fascinating moment in time, I believe. Of You know, of course, temperatures here in the Sonoran Desert are beginning to skyrocket. It's about hundred degrees today, but also we're talking about border militarization and human rights violations just about a week after the formal end of Title 42. And so, you know, just to to sort of take stock for a moment for those who might be unfamiliar about Title 42 and its goings on, um, you know, the El Paso Times it, it outlines that since March of 2020, the U.S. has used its authority under Title 42, which is a public health law, to rapidly expel migrants and, in some cases, completely suspend the right to seek asylum under U.S. law and international treaty. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention under the Trump administration first invoked Title 42. This was shortly after the pandemic outbreak began. Uh, You know, this purpose of of Title 42 was to prohibit border control agencies from holding migrants in congregate settings, as they say, you know, congregating together, like in holding stations and detention centers where COVID 19 could spread rapidly. But in effect, Title 42 gave the government this power you know, sort of like a a completely unchecked power in many senses to rapidly expel any migrant without giving them the opportunity to make the case for staying in the country legally, including their right to seek asylum. And so there's been many legal challenges to this policy. April of last year, the Biden administration said that they would rescind Title 42. The policy was officially to end last May, but it got caught in, you know, sort of like a legal wrangling for many months. Since the start of Title 42, Border Patrol has expelled migrants nearly 2.8 million times, according to CBP, Customs and Border Protection. Since the announcement of the end of Title 42, around 1,500 additional troops, as I've been reading, they've been deployed to the southern border, particularly in El Paso, with varied calls to arms that are amplified by unabashed xenophobe Governor Greg Abbott headlines have leaned heavily on this fear mongering right that it's a surge it's an impending surge a surge is already underway but of course the so-called surge of the very moment that uh, you know as you're sort of stemming back to some of these earlier moments of, of cross-border movement and migration um, you know exposures in the desert and so forth you know so much of it of course stems back to neoliberal policy and NAFTA era, you know, regulations and the correlated austerity and all of this imperial meddling throughout Mexico and Central and South America. You know, we have the ongoing and perennially failing war on drugs. We have these histories and these tragedies that have continued to, you know, through various waves of migrations and these upticks in extreme violence throughout the borderlands. And so I'm thinking here, of course, you know, reel it in Taylor, I'm thinking here. (laughs) About this latest amplification of borderlands violence, and of course, my brain is also sort of temporally jogging between how you say it's nothing new, but this huge uptick in violence that we are bearing witness to, just you know, on our scrolling through our phones or reading the newspapers. But it's these these you know it's rooted in this white supremacist cry for defense and protection and securitization, and the ways that these facts about asylum and migration. And economic opportunity and and so much more. It's so convoluted, right? These political campaigns, much as you said, and, and the media circuits are built around how these borders are so open, right? They're just wide open and people are flooding in. But of course, for those on the ground, for researchers and for those with a keen eye and understanding towards these policies and procedures, we might know that the exact opposite is true. And so while you and I, you know, we're not going to dive into the nuance of Title 42 and especially sort of like the the legal frameworks of it all, I, I just wanted everybody to sort of be caught up to speed. We're all on the same page about, you know, this ending of Title 42, the intricacies of it ending. There's so much more to be said. But I think that this is an entry point then for us to learn more about your intensive field work on Border Patrol and on these rescue beacons and these, you know, various humanitarian efforts. And how we can situate it in the saga, right? The saga of cross-border migration, of prevention through deterrence, and these ongoing crises of disappearance and death throughout this desert. Yeah, that's super helpful, and, and I'd be happy to.
1: I think it's really useful to contextualize the rescue beacons in the wake of Title 42, particularly when you're thinking about these categories of deservedness and of aid, These categories of who's an asylum seeker versus an economic migrant or climate refugee or citizen versus a legal alien and what basic rights such as emergency rescue are afforded to people in that framework and according to what category gets overlaid onto them. In the beginning of my research, um, I just spent a lot of time digging through materials and we trying to follow every thread to both better understand the context and to understand if there might be anything I could offer as a master's student based in London um, to either the scholarship or the efforts on the ground to resist the violent bordering practices in the region. And as I was doing that, I came across a mention of Border Patrol rescue beacons on the homepage of the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge which is an enormous area in Western Arizona, managed by Fish and Wildlife Service in the Department of the Interior. Um, It was, if I remember correctly, I think it was a call for questions or concerns from the public related to the relocation of a rescue beacon um, and like a mandatory or routine, but routine document that described how the beacons were intended for use by people crossing the border and outlining the potential environmental impact of relocating the object. Um, so these beacons, for people who aren't familiar, they're they're a similar concept to what you might find on a college campus. That's often what people ask when I try to describe them. So they have a blue light and a button to call for help. They're often like a 25 or 35-foot pole with this blinking blue light LED light at the top and, and then a call button for help. And in some cases, you might have a satellite phone um, attached to it since much of the area has no cell coverage. There's around 56 of them in Arizona, and they have signage on them in English and Spanish and autumn um, describing what to do if you need rescue, if you need somebody. Uh, There's pictures showing somebody pressing the button and waiting uh, for someone to come with water. Um, It does not necessarily say that they are managed and maintained by Border Patrol and that it's Border Patrol who answers the call for help. So around the same time, a, a group of humanitarian aid workers and members of the group No More Deaths or Mas Muertes were being prosecuted by the federal government for their actions related to aid work on Cabeza Prieta. And then one of these volunteers was also facing additional felony charges for providing direct aid to two men who were migrating. Um, in the course of the trials, the prosecutor for the federal government argued that, um, and this is a quote, humanitarian aid should be left to Border Patrol. Referring in part to these border patrol rescue beacons as part of the agency's ability to handle um, any humanitarian or rescue needs by people migrating. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of the podcast listeners are familiar with the history of border securitization in the area. But for those who aren't, maybe I can just zoom out for a quick moment and provide like the briefest history Mm -hmm. that might contextualize the beacons and the dynamics of cross-border movement in the region So prevention through deterrence, which you mentioned, was a national strategy put into place in the 90s in 1994 under the Clinton administration, um, which, amongst other tactics, heavily militarized cities along the borders, such as San Diego and El Paso, in an effort to curb unsanctioned migration. So a lot of buildup of walls and fences and um, border patrol presence. It was believed that by closing off these passage points, Cross-border routes would be forced into the more remote regions between the cities, which includes the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, um, and that the harsh environmental conditions and terrain would deter people from attempting to cross the border. They would prevent people from crossing by deterring them um, because the journey would be too difficult. Instead, what resulted was a spike in deaths and disappearances, often due to dehydration and exposure in these super remote areas beginning in the late 90s and continuing today. Um, So as of this year, the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office, who is um, receiving these cases, they have recorded over 4,000 deaths of this kind in Arizona. Um, And this number does not speak at all to the thousands more who have disappeared and might never be found. Over the past 20 years or so, um, many grassroots organizations have formed in response, and they're providing aid to people crossing the border, maintaining supplies of food and water in remote areas where we know people are walking, and in areas where we know people have died, Um, and groups have formed to conduct searches for missing people, either presumed to be alive or missing persons cases that might be years old. Um, this is a wholly inadequate description of the history and and legacy of prevention through deterrence, but enough maybe to mm-hmm. situate the rescue beacons. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, these these two mentions of the beacon that I referenced—one on the website of the wildlife refuge, and then the second part of the the second as part of the trial where the humanitarian aid worker was facing a seventeen-year prison sentence for providing aid. These two instances together had me very disoriented and confused when I came across them only within like a week apart. And so I just started down this thread of trying to find out more about the rescue beacons, really simple questions. How many were there? How often were they used? What happens when they are activated? Um, Where they were located? And it became clear very quickly that what, there was almost no public information about them and definitely not a map. They are managed, as I mentioned, and maintained by Border Patrol. And so the majority of information I could find about them was their, mention in, um, their mentions in press releases, Border Patrol press releases related to rescues, um, you know, which obviously paints Border Patrol in a very certain light as coming to, to the aid of, um, of people in need. I was also told by one organization that Border Patrol had once shared the location of the beacons, but um, in the past few years stopped sharing those locations. And for reasons that they said uh, were related to the beacon locations being sensitive information or confidential, mm-hmm. um, which in my mind was very contradictory to an object purportedly oh, designed okay. to be found. Like mm-hmm. there's an inherent contradiction there. Okay. Um, So, yeah, my research then took the form um, because I am practice-based. A lot of my work tends to be um, hands-on. It's not uh, necessarily only through like a a textual analysis or in the archives. But I I started mapping, attempting to map every beacon um, using open source materials found online. So very simple internet searches. Um, There was mentions of beacons on on like these RV blogs, travel guides, um, yeah, very, very random places, some social media posts. Um, And then I would use freedom of, I I submitted a few Freedom of Information Act requests, mostly to the land management agencies because much of Southern Arizona is uh, federally managed land, Hmm. um, managed within the Department of the Interior. Um, I also submitted a FOIA request to Border Patrol that I think they responded to like only a few months ago. It was almost three years later. Um, But ultimately, most of the beacons I've found has been through the use of remote sensing um, using satellite imagery. So Google Earth uh, and scouring in a very labor-intensive process to geolocate them in the desert. Um, You can just barely see them on satellite imagery. and, um, And yeah, that took some some effort at the moment i think i have 45 or 46 of them yeah located well, but that's a bit of the the background
0: amazing and that i just get eye strained zooming so <laughs> much into google earth all the it time. was neurotic <laughs> yeah that's hard stuff though you know especially when there's that purposeful obfuscation of face mm. and you know of, of the landscape um through these technologies mm. um that's definitely uh, sort of a rabbit hole of my own work too. Mm -hmm. what what can and can't be viewed Mm -hmm. above, you know, that sort of all seeing eye. And, you know, it's so fascinating. And, of course, extremely bleak that that Border Patrol strategic plan, you know, you were mentioning dating back to uh, the beginning of prevention through deterrence, the early 90s. Uh, in 1994 that document laid the groundwork for this project this always ongoing despotism you know this racialized this gender this class-based violence against those who are already most vulnerable most marginalized um you know the desert crossers and so while there's no shortage of border rapportage especially the last couple weeks oh my gosh it's 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 an complete inundation and 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 it's so frustrating too you know to see sort of the the mismanagement of a lot of facts and statistics and imagery right and sort of that same the same images used over and over again to depict this incredibly diverse space but you know during these instances of what feels like such spectacular cruelty I feel like so seldom are these actual infrastructures you know the beacons and 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 so everything that's so much more than the wall but of course the wall itself so seldom is it really rigorously interrogated for the ways in which these technologies are reproductive of these harms, um, you know, I've been diving into your work, revisiting some of it. We were we were talking about you know, sort of revisiting things that have happened in the past couple years of, of whirlwind research. Mm-hmm. But um, you wrote in a piece that was in the Parsons Journal of Design Studies. Uh, it was called "An Elusive Viewshed," and so you wrote that the beacon's position in this space of excess relies on the assumption of the undocumented as undeserving of a set of internationally recognized human rights that are reserved for citizens within the quote territorialized framework of sovereignty. Relegated to the realm of morals, the beacons are guarded against the scrutiny and they're appropriated into the project of securitization. This formulation explains why the rescue beacons have never been subjected to a thorough quantitative analysis nor rigorously examined for the evidence of efficacy. And you're even talking about, you know, how you, you, it's so hard to find them on Google earth or, you know, how, how it suddenly became this protected, you know, material, something mm. that, that is no longer able to be found, even though it's, it's, it's sole purpose is to be found and discovered mm-hmm. and utilized. Um, and so I, am curious if you could elaborate a bit on these beacons and how they're functioning, as tools of territorialization, you know, and how, how these and, and the related technologies, I'm thinking about the integrated fixed towers and things of that mm-hmm. nature, how they're making the border more malleable, of course, in the interest of the occupier, more mobile, right? But that's further complicating aid work and any claims to sovereignty and, and, and it's creating these new closures for others.
1: Yeah, the beacons, they, they definitely are, they feel very particular in this framework of securitization, um, both because they aren't overtly designed as a means of surveillance or apprehension. They're not like the IFT towers um, designed specifically as part of like the surveillance apparatus, mm. though I believe they function that way often. You know, they have cameras on them. I, I think they have motion sensors attached to them. But also because in the reporting on the beacons that came out during the trial, they were described as having a certain amount of coverage based on the strength of the blue LED light that blinks on top. Mm -hmm. So it was reported that you can see that blue light from 10 miles away. So if you, you know, you can think about it, if you multiply 10 miles by however many beacons, you have X amount of square miles of coverage, which is just a really uh, sort of bizarre formulation. You know, when you go into the realm of of light or that's where I'm I'm playing on this sort of view shed, which is mm. sort of the um, the vantage points from which you can see a certain object or or from what you can see from us from a specific site. And so they are also let's see here. Yeah. So if you they're also designed to have a minimal environmental impact and a small footprint um, that's so that they can be installed on conservation land. Um, the Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument is there along the border, as is Cabeza Prieta, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so this seemingly like environmentally friendly humanitarian object, which is entirely under the discretion and management of Border Patrol, which is an infamously destructive and violent agency, it stretches the boundaries of how Border Patrol can operate in this field. Um, And in speaking about the territorialized framework of sovereignty, here I'm citing Jill Williams, who's a feminist geographer who has written about the ways that border enforcement has co-opted a humanitarian framework to justify their work. And so as Williams describes it, this framework of sovereignty through the lens of humanitarianism, um, it's a struggle over differential rights and the delineation of categories of people. And this comes into play very forcefully in the realm of rescue in southern Arizona where Border Patrol is the agency with the resources to conduct rescues when people are in life-threatening situations in the middle of the desert. But they also have full discretionary power and little to no oversight over whether they respond to these calls. Um, So we don't actually know how many times the beacons are being activated and those calls are being ignored, or whether the people who call for help are actually getting the services they require. No more deaths and Coalición de Derechos Humanos, two organizations based out of Tucson, have done incredible work in in their most recent disappeared report to analyze some of the data related to this field of rescue. They were able to um, use a FOIA request to get access to um, a log of 911 calls, um, presumed to be from people crossing the desert that were then forwarded to Border Patrol. Um, And many of those calls end up being dropped or they don't lead to any kind of response. There's also groups of volunteers who are fielding calls um, weekly from, if not daily, from people in need of help. And those volunteers are often having to repeatedly call and place pressure on Border Patrol to respond. And ultimately, we have to take the agency's word as to whether they do respond or not, and if they found the missing person or not. Sometimes they'll say, yes, we did a search, we didn't find them. There's no way to know if that actually happened. Um, it's it's truly a nightmare.
0: Yeah.
1: And even more insidious is that the federal government would try to use these beacons in the courtroom as a way to convince a jury that not only is humanitarian aid workers or their presence not needed, but that the aid we provide is criminal. That's where the beacons get, um, I mean, there's many ways that they're insidious, but I think the fact that they become this talking point, um, Mm -hmm. sort of this rhetorical claim around Border Patrol's ability to to provide all of the aid that might be needed in an area Mm -hmm. um, is really obviously not what's in their mission and not their ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. I think it also needs to be mentioned that just this week, Border Patrol murdered an Otsm awesome man at his home on the Tahana Otsm Reservation, um, which is along the border. and And the traditional lands obviously exist before the border existed. Hmm. Uh, Raymond Mattia had called Border Patrol for help to to ask them to remove people who were crossing the border through his property. And when Border Patrol arrived, the details aren't clear yet. But it's I believe being reported that 38 shots were 30, fired. Yeah, eight. Yeah. So I don't. Mountain it's, it's really, I mean, it's really sickening. And, you know, we, so we don't need to look very hard to see the violence of a militarized border and the effects of a military occupation on indigenous land and how calls for help from people who are supposed to have rights, even within these frameworks, how these calls for help can turn into death sentences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know that, that news that came out this weekend and it's truly yeah. chilling, and it's truly chilling to think that it's you know just a handful of miles from here. I mean, regardless of mm-hmm. when something like that takes place, but um, you know, it definitely has given much to meditate on, and mm-hmm. you know, also something that's not very you know rife for meditation, nor enjoyable, nor relaxing. Mm-hmm. But I was uh, ahead of our our chat. I was looking at the the twenty twenty two through twenty six border patrol strategic plan because you know trying to connect the dots from the 1994 one through present day. And, you know, unsurprisingly to both of us and and many Mm -hmm. others, this technological innovation is the focal point. Mm -hmm. We sometimes hear that uh, time and again in the media escape too. you know, a a virtual wall or Mm -hmm. a, a boom in technology. And so while the language is, of course, intentionally ambiguous, what they're writing about in the plan that's made public for all, you know, the organizing and the and the deployment of these, quote, intelligence assets are a core objective time and time again throughout that document. And so I think that a, a main point that's very easily forgotten, not by, you know, researchers in the field necessarily, but when we're, when We're naming this as that militarized occupation. You know, we have to remember that these technologies are developed, you know, these, these, these towers and these beacons, they're developed for their obsolescence. And, and, and I Mm want to underscore that because, you know, borders are business. They're massive business and, and they're multi-billion dollar, if not trillion dollar business. And before a camera or drone or a sensor is installed, you know, there's already that newer model in waiting or mm-hmm. that, that's currently under development and it's field tested, right. It's mm-hmm. field tested here, but also in, in other occupied territories like throughout Palestine or in Kashmir and beyond. And, you know, so this border technology advancement, it's, it's a lifeblood to Tucson. It's a lifeblood to the settler colonial project and it's very much always ongoing. And so, you know, they're weaponizing, uh, uh sort of the ambiguity of these mm-hmm. vegans. Right. And, and I can only imagine that in, a handful of months or already underway is, Oh, these are outdated. We need, we need a newer model, a more effective model. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so I'm just curious if you maybe personally or in some of your other findings have, you know, sort of projections or observations as to what the the, the next steps will be for these beacons or, you know, directions that department of Homeland security would take or is already mm-hmm. taking in terms of ramping up these virtual walls.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah, you're giving me these flashbacks to yeah. when I was doing my original research and reading every report issued by the is it the GOA, the government office mm-hmm. of accountability. Yeah, sure. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that whatever the name is yeah. <laughs> that they they have these reports. They would issue these reports about about border patrol and every almost every single report was it was named like more oversight needed more Uh oversight needed uh as the agency sinks money into these technologies um and particularly in the wake of sbi net which i was just fascinated by when i first came across it this one billion dollar quote unquote smart border project Uh that was scrapped um i think decades ago maybe in the early 2000s because the conditions of the desert were insurmountable just Uh this sort of techno fetishist dream of a smart border completely uh, defeated by the desert. And so, yeah, regarding the beacons, I I can't say I have a very clear idea what if there is a plan necessarily for the beacons. Um, I do know that in the past couple of years, I saw myself that they replaced at least one beacon on organ pipe um, with a newer, more mobile version on wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me says that they are investing money into better designs as opposed to abandoning the beacons altogether. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, if you see them out there, they're they're bent by storms, the the signage is all peeling. Um, I remember my when I first moved to Arizona, I was camping um, on a on an aid trip below one beacon, and the blue light it wasn't working. It wasn't on. This was a beacon I had been looking at from satellite imagery for years and finally I was under it and <laughs> and it wasn't working. And no. um yeah, and actually sorry, not to get too anecdotal, but no. a friend and I were, yeah, we're delivering aid into an area called the Growler Valley, which has sort of a history of a lot of activity, um, both by Border Patrol, people crossing, and humanitarian aid workers. And we were trying to put water out and um we We came back up to camp underneath this beacon, which wasn't working. And then eventually a border patrol agent drove up. Um, we, we triggered some sensor on the beacon oh. below. and he was he came to ask if we had activated the beacon, which, in my mind, I was like, I wish, but no, I <laughs> have not pressed the button. Um, and I mentioned to him, I was like, do you know what's happening with the beacon? The light is not blinking? And he had not noticed at all. And I know it had been a couple of weeks that it wasn't working. Oh. So <laughs> this is just all to say the, the beacons are definitely de- designed for obsolescence. We don't even know if they're working half the time, um, but they do seem to be investing money into newer versions of them. So they're not abandoning them altogether. Um, and the older versions, I believe, were built in-house by Border Patrol, whereas these newer models look like they were outsourced. Um, but I think in terms of what you're saying, I agree. It's It won't end. Um, it is a business. And the motivation for designing and installing these technologies are not primarily to stop people from crossing. Like, we know the border is a testing ground and it's a laboratory, which means there's infinite space for experimentation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it truly—I I say lifeblood, not even a bit, sarcastically. Mm-hmm. That truly, you know, this this development boom that's taking place throughout Tucson is is due large in part to companies like Elbit, like mm-hmm. Raytheon, of course, like Leonardo, like so many of these others that are manufacturing laser diodes and all these other technologies that. Or tested here, Mm -hmm. tested abroad, and then, you know, uh, trialed again here. Um, But it is truly what is making this current boom Mm -hmm. explode, for lack of a better, you know, phraseology, but it's chilling. Um, You know, you mentioned uh, and I apologize, uh, the train's going by in the background We're <laughs> thinking of the infrastructures and, and, and all sorts of technologies moving about there's our union Pacific line, but, um, you know, for, uh, for our, some of our listeners, I, am sure that they would love to toggle through and learn more about the Arizona beacon map, because you were talking about how, uh, you've located several dozen of these already, um, And perhaps there are more yet to be found or other ways to track them down. But I would love to learn more about, you know, uh, this project and and if it's still underway or if you foresee any sorts of adjustments to your methodologies in terms of collecting this data on the beacons, um, you know, as we're sort of charging full steam ahead into this next era of an ever more mobile, Mm -hmm. impermeable, yet malleable border, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I I published, um, I think in, in spring of 2021, I published the Arizona Beacon Map Platform. So it's a public website um, with a map of the beacons and data related to the rescue beacons that I have been able to find. Um, and I have to admit to everybody listening, the website is a work in progress. Um sure. Yeah, I I need to find the last nine or ten beacons, which I'm actually I'm part of a research collective called Border Ecologies, and I'm holding a hosting a geolocation workshop with them in a week or so, and they're going to help me find the rest of them, mm. um, which I'm really excited about. And it's like Where's Waldo, but in real life. Basically, basically, yeah. I you know they've asked me to present on my research to the group. And I'm like, I would love to do that, but also I need help finding <laughs> these last nine beacons. Um, so they were all very supportive. And um, I also want to get the website translated into Spanish and autumn. Um, and I would love to ultimately make some more legible printable PDF maps of the beacon locations. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I located them using legal means. Um, so I the locations should be public um, and should be known by people who might need to use them or so that people can make decisions for themselves about whether or not um, that is their best form of rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way it's an ongoing project. It's still unfinished. And then it's also ongoing in a different way. I wasn't sure, like when I published the the website, I wasn't quite sure how it might actually support efforts on the ground. I felt really strongly that the locations should be public, but I wasn't as certain about how that information might be used. And I think that could be true of most research, right? We might have a a motivating or a, or a certain motivation to do it, um, but it, there's no way to know how how that research might be mobilized or what it might be used for. Um, So after I published the map, I went to Arizona. I was living in Massachusetts at the time where my family is, and I booked a trip to Arizona for what was supposed to be a month um, to volunteer with some of the groups I had been in touch with and speak with aid workers and search and rescue volunteers to see if the beacon map might be useful. Um, And very quickly, within a few weeks, there was an instance where a missing person was found because they were able to reference their proximity to a beacon and -hmm. volunteers now had the information about the beacon locations and were able to navigate to that area where they were left, where that person had been left behind. Um, Yeah, which was, I mean, an incredible experience and also like a very humble one. You know, it's a very Mm -hmm. small contribution to the work that these people are doing every week. But it was a sign that the beacon map could be helpful um, in certain areas. And so and that scenario made it clear to me that the beacons were also wayfinding devices for search and rescue. Like the more landmark data we can have and are familiar with, the easier it is to locate a missing person if they are on the phone describing their surroundings. That can be an incredibly difficult task. Given the lack of access to roads and just like the sheer scale of the desert in the area, there's often not necessarily a, a remarkable landmark to help find, figure out where a person might be missing. So after that month, yeah, it only took me a few weeks to realize I now lived in Arizona. <laughs> I wasn't going back to Massachusetts. A common story. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Time and time again, we've heard it. Um, and I, I got very involved. Um, Yeah. I moved to Ajo um, and I got very involved in the search and rescue and the aid efforts, not, not as a researcher. I kind of took that hat off for the time being. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and in that way, the platform feels like an ongoing project and that it's like the foundation for a lot of the collaboration I've done thus far um, and hope to do in the future. Um, And, it has the potential to expand into different kinds of mapping projects that might directly respond to the needs of groups who are providing aid or rescue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, You know, you're, you're speaking of this landmark data and um, that phrase, you know, light goes off in my brain Mm. because that's what drew me to your work is the, the, uh, you know, all these mappings, but their relationships to the landscape, you know, something Mm. that I'm, I'm, only now more than 20 years into living here, 20 plus oh, wow. years, it's, uh, you know, constantly reconceiving of, or figuring my place in relationship to this landscape. Um, and I think the same can be said for, for many, you know, but there's just so many very physical, very catastrophic consequences of, these beacons and their installation and their maintenance and you know i'm just i constantly think about the ways in which so-called progress is doing the very opposite to the Mm -hmm. landscape and you know uh the 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 consequences of these beacons and of course all of the, the the myriad wall technologies is undoubtedly due to border patrol's negligence or dare i say their ignorance right the lights going out and such but you know, there's also sort of these, these ghastly traces that fascinate me. And, you know, some might consider them inconsequential or easily overlooked, you know, how refuse is handled by border patrol or gasoline usage and the spills mm-hmm. and the noise pollution and, you know, on and on and on. And so I'm thinking about your visual essay, it was called incursions, and it's part of the hostile environments program with Lorenzo Pisani. And so Y'all were investigating and continue to investigate the political ecologies of migration and of border violence here in the Mediterranean and beyond. And, you know, we'll link to to all these projects, of course, so that listeners can see these photographs and uh, as well as the beacon mapping. But what's pictured in incursions are these CBP tire tracks and how they're carving and how they're splicing up the low desert scrub, you know, the creosote, the saltbush, the cholla. It's like the destruction's path be damned, whatever. And so you received a lot of these images or all of the images, rather, from uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, for your Freedom of Information Act request, you know, Freedom of Information Act request is artistic process, right? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, various government actors, they're supposed to cooperate in the interest of land management and, you know, the the ever. Beautiful conservation ideals and securitization and so forth. But you write here ultimately, however, border security trumps conservation. And on the single word exigent, in quotes, within the 2006 Memorandum of Understanding, hinges this ultimate discretionary power on the part of individual border patrol agents. The continued violations evince the state's approach to border enforcement for the past 30 plus years. The shortest path at any cost an accumulation of reactionary practice, excuse me, policies, destructive projects, and wanton divergences that culminate in the bulldozing of mountains to build an inane and incomplete wall across the desert, which was once itself the intended barrier. Uh, Even though I didn't read that as clearly as perhaps, you know, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about it. uh, I Mm -hmm. think about it time and time again, the ways in which the shortest path at any cost uh, Mm -hmm. uh, is sort of like the of of tucson or of development and these and these cycles of boom and bust throughout the the southwest desert um you know both of our work in in some senses builds on the research of of those at forensic architecture and a, we- a. leitzman and here you are expanding on how he discusses that controlling the space demands creating this differentiation in speed of movement and i think about this all the time i think about this often in relation to the pace of of you know gentrification and the concurrent ruination that I'm witnessing across Tucson you know perhaps mm. others might deem it to be this this exciting development boom but in many senses it's the ruination of the city of the desert right of Sonora and how these war machines of Raytheon and Elvid and Leonardo like I mentioned before as long as uh, excuse me as well as like a slew of other corporations are just expanding their facilities and they're exporting this weaponry at breakneck pace. You know, there are these vacant strip malls and the, the parked bulldozers and the abundance of, of Airbnbs. We have them mm-hmm. on three, three sides of our house in our wow. spring. Um, and they're slowly, but they're steadily swallowing up the property too, you know, along with any problem, any promise uh, of a just housing market or of equitable living. And, you know, everyone's cheering on rainwater harvesting, but mm-hmm. they turn an eye a blind eye to homeless encampments, and and many of which are swept away not only by police, but also by monsoons, right? So mm-hmm. rainwater harvesting for who? And so f- for, for me, these are simply violences by other names, you know, under these guys, guises of development and safety and progress, ad nauseum. But in so many senses, I think it's just all a desecration. Of this very sacred landscape and of indigeneity and, and of these spaces and these opportunities for free movement and for borderless futures and it's it just keeps coming back to this politics of speed for me and uh, you know, time and time again I'm doing this thing where it's like a comment more than a question but you know maybe you can share a bit more about incursions and about those images and the roads and the scars and you know what all of this across the Sonoran landscape might represent or
1: yeah yeah so I I was submitting I love the way you yeah mentioned FOIA as artistic practice because it's definitely always in the back of my mind this media project of like what's in the archives of a FOIA request um but when I was submitting these FOIA requests to find the beacons in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen i had I was in touch with volunteers in Arizona, and I was kind of offering this service to anybody because I'm a nerd and I like to do it um and it's you know it's labor intensive it's kind of annoying um mm-hmm. and so I had a volunteer ask me if I could submit a request related to off road driving by border patrol on the Capesa Prieta National Wildlife Refuge. I think she was just curious and In knowing how often Border Patrol was, you know, jumping off of the designated roads and into the desert to basically chase after people um, and whether they were able to do that freely or or needed certain permissions. Um, It took about a year, I think, to receive a response, which is pretty typical. I think it's supposed to take 20 days, but that's seldom the case if you don't have a, a lawyer and some like legal heft behind you. Um, and so I got, I think I got a cache of files, and, and in it there was a series of photographs, which are part of the essay, the visual essay, and a strongly worded letter from the manager of Cabeza Prieta to Border Patrol, um, referring to the discoveries of the refuge staff of these clear violations of the MOU and instances of Border Patrol agents driving off of the designated roads and through the desert, which is supposed to be protected. It's a wildlife refuge. Um, I found these photographs so interesting, so fascinating. They they look like they're taken with like a disposable camera. They have a little time stamp in the corner in orange from Um, the nineteen ninety four. They're yeah yeah they're incredible. Um, But and you know they're really mundane. They're 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 not spectacular photos. They're not um, you know they're not beautiful landscape photos of the desert. They're documentation. They're like. There are like counter surveillance by Cabeza Prieta against border patrol and documentation of instances where agents are clearly um, violating this agreement. And and I think in one instance, there was even like heavy machinery was driving around or sure, construction yeah. machinery Of course.
0: <laughs>
1: so, yeah, it's not it's not difficult to understand the contradictions of wildlife conservation and militarization. Um and often we have land managers of, you know, of the National Monument, of the refuge, who do not speak out at all directly against the destruction that's caused by Border Patrol and, mm-hmm. and by the border. Um, for instance, there was radio silence from Oregon Pipe National Cactus Monument when Quito Baquito Springs, which is like a sacred and really mm-hmm. beautiful spring, in the middle of the desert with so much life and it was com- depleted at the same time as construction crews were pumping out groundwater to mix cement for the wall. And there was, you know, not a peep from these from the agency that has been has taken <laughs> has taken the the role of um, stewarding that land, you know, through through dispossession, through the deep peopling of the area. Hmm. And so in the documents of this of this FOIA request, we see evidence that Border Patrol's activities are just unchecked and the land managers have very little control over what these agents do. And this differential of speed that you're describing, it's felt so clearly when you're out there. You know, we know you have people walking up to 80 miles across the desert in this area. Sometimes that takes weeks to reach safety. Um and this is often only one part of what has already been an incredibly difficult journey, um, often across Central America, to just reach this point. Mm-hmm. So they're not starting that walk in a, in a healthy state. Then you have above you fighter jets practicing maneuvers, um, because it's all military airspace. They're often breaking the sound barrier and creating these sonic booms that sound like explosions. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have Border Patrol racing around in helicopters, in their trucks, on ATVs. Volunteers have requested to use these roads, these well-established roads, to deliver aid or conduct searches, and they've been frequently denied. So in the Ajo area, we're carrying humanitarian aid supplies anywhere from 1 to 13 miles round trip Hmm. to keep these stocks of water um, and supplies maintained in areas where we know people have died. And search groups are hiking 20 miles or more to search for missing people. Meanwhile, you have Border Patrol just carving out new roads um, through the monument and through Cabeza Prieta without without any regard oh, yeah. yeah, or consequence. And so I myself have experienced these roads in two ways. First, from the satellite imagery, when I was looking for the beacons, I became well-versed in sort of the, like, the visual language of the desert from this bird's eye view, what has been described as the view from nowhere. And it is this sort of surveillance state view. You know, it's not an unproblematic way to yeah. um, to to start a relationship with a place. Um, but from that angle, you can see these, these well-established roads, the ones that are supposed to be used and, and the ones that we are supposed to, Border Patrol is supposed to limit their activities to. And then you also see the ATV tracks that are veering off off of these roads in all sorts of directions and across really fragile ecosystems. And then when I moved to Ajo and became involved in the work there, I I experienced the roads in a very different way as a driver, as driving on them in order to get supplies as close as we could um, before we had to start hiking. And in this scenario, it might take 90 minutes to travel 13 miles in a four-wheel drive vehicle because of just the, you know, sort of the ruggedness and meanwhile, the roads on Organ Pipe, such as Bates Well Road, have been increasingly widened and graded since the construction of the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, this allows agents to drive at absurdly fast speeds. It kicks up a lot of dust, which then covers the plants and mm-hmm. interferes with you know sort of the the photosynthesis and and the natural ecology there. And I had a near accident even this past winter, where a border patrol agent was coming around a bend, and we were you know on on route to have a head-on collision because of the speed at which he was driving at. And this agent veered off road to avoid the crash and just drove up onto the desert and around us and kept going at probably 40, 50 miles an hour. Um, wow. Which was, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a coincidence. It's not unremarkable. Wow. It just shows sort of the, the attitude and the relationship that this agency has with this, with this mm-hmm. environment. hmm And then the maintenance of these roads, definitely they have this devastating effect in monsoon season, which you can see really clearly if you're ever caught out there in a monsoon, which I was once about a year ago, where the the roads divert the rains. And so the rainfall is so rare and so incredibly vital. Um, for the for the ecology but these deeper roads turn into rivers and you can just see the water get completely rerouted and not reach huge expanses of the desert where they would have naturally flown Hmm. and so this is like a subtler maybe less visible form of violence um, less Hmm. visible than the spectacular like explosions that were needed to create to to construct the the border wall But yeah, we know the Sonoran Desert, it's the most biodiverse desert in the world. It's so full of life and has a long history of people living on and with the land. And and so I think, you know, my thinking around these like banal images or these really unspectacular images of these roads was just to sort of resist the misconception that it's an empty space. Mm -hmm. um, And to show that even these sort of smaller, seemingly like everyday incursions have have a long lasting impact.
0: Well yeah, it's it's absolutely made me even just think of these banal moments like tire tracks that are that are splicing through it all, just the the immense impact that something so unimportant to so many. Mm-hmm. It just it completely alters the way of life here. And mm-hmm. I, I probably will never think of a, you know, a caterpillar bulldozers, tire tracks, (laughs) again, now just walking around town, even, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about the diversion of rainwater, maybe even as its own form of dispossession. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you just, you have me pinging around so many ideas. (laughs) I wish we could talk for hours about (laughs) your work and its implications. I don't, we, we might lose a couple of listeners along the way, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these all these nodes of connection and the militarization of and beyond these borders. Um, it just truly is so important. It's such important work. Mm-hmm. And it's just so important, I think, for all of us to consider, uh, you know, as we move through these seasons, as we move through these policies and as you know, as we're moving through various administrations, even, know, yeah. and, um, you know, all the this all of the implications and and seemingly irreversible damages in the name of what right in the name of what um but you know in the in the interest of time Mm -hmm. keeping everybody around hopefully um you know maybe you can tell us just a little bit more about your current projects uh um you know and what's on the horizon
1: yeah it's been such a pleasure i was i'm really so grateful for the opportunity and um yeah, let's see what's on the horizon. I am wrapping up the first year of my PhD. Um, yeah, as soon as I uh, find out what media studies is, <laughs> I will let all the listeners know. Um, yeah, I'm surprised. unsurprisingly in a state of confusion. Probably no more clear on what I am doing than when I first arrived, but I think that's part of the process. Yeah, grad school in one sentence. Exactly. I'm right on track. (laughs) Um, But yeah, simultaneously to my studies, I've been pretty busy. I've had a few ongoing projects. Up until recently, I was coordinating an investigation with the agency Border Forensics, which you mentioned. Um, I was working with geographers and remote sensing experts to make visible the devastating effects of of bordering in the Sahara, and specifically Niger. Um, I stepped down to focus on school a few weeks ago, but the team has since published a report of our findings just this past month, which shows how a law passed in 2015 in Niger with the support of EU states, which was intended to curb cross-Saharan migration, basically to, to stop people from reaching the shores of the Mediterranean how this has created incredibly more dangerous journeys for people on the move. Um, And there's really no data about how many people are are dying or disappearing in this region. So we employed satellite imagery to better understand how these cross-Saharan routes were being pushed deeper into the desert um, due to the proliferation of bordering, following the policy in the form of checkpoints and patrols. And then, how these more remote routes created increasingly life threatening conditions in the scenario of a vehicle breakdown, mm-hmm. um, looking at sort of sweat loss, basically water loss, how quickly people can become dehydrated and, and die of dehydration if their vehicle were to break down even further from, you know, say a town or, or even the route that most people are driving because they have to be, they're, they're now moving sort of out of view so as not to be apprehended. Mm. Um, there are deep resonances with the dynamics at play in Arizona, but right. also so many differences. And it was really incredible to be part of this like desert border collaboration and mm-hmm. bring knowledge of the Sonoran Desert into conversation with the knowledge of our Nigerian collaborators in the Sahara. Mm. And then I have another project I'm that's ongoing that I'm involved in. And this is a collaborative search and rescue report. Um, in in the context of Arizona, so along with a few other researchers, um, including Robin Reinecke at the center and and aid workers and SAR volunteers, a small team of us have been working to create this monthly report um, that shows the the search activities and and specifically the tracks like the hiking mm-hmm. tracks of um, any participating SAR groups, any groups who want to contribute, who are active in Arizona, and I really have so much respect for these groups who not only conduct these incredibly taxing searches, but are also doing an incredible amount of unseen emotional labor Mm -hmm. in being the point of contact for family members whose loved ones have gone missing and who have nowhere else to turn for help in the search. Mm -hmm. So this report makes at least the search labor visible to to each Mm -hmm. other, to the community, and ideally helps different groups to get a bigger picture of the search activity happening each month communication and collaboration between SAR groups um, is often difficult, I think, for many reasons. But but the intensity of the work, the amount of effort it takes to collaborate is definitely high on the list of reasons. Mm -hmm. And ideally, this report takes some of the burden off of those challenges and allows each group to see themselves as part of a larger community, which I think is something we all understand theoretically, but seeing search tracks on a map can perhaps create new connections or forms of knowledge amongst us. Um yeah and I'm excited. It's it's behind the scenes. It's not a public facing project, which is how I like my work. Um but those are some of the things I'm working on these
0: days. Absolutely phenomenal. Um Tara, thank you so so much for all of your time today, but you know, more mm. importantly, all of this incredible research and the labor as yes. you know you just said, uh, the labor that goes into all of this work, um you know, throughout the Sonoran Desert and beyond and you know, just helping us see things in, in so many new and challenging and exciting ways. So thank you so, so much. And thank you. We'll, we'll chat soon. Yeah, no, it was so great to be here. And yeah, I would love to stay in
1: conversation and, and see what you get up to next.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Tara. Thank
1: you.